0: Hey, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here, our team combs through the literature to find the best articles so that you don't have to, and then provides expert summaries no bigger than a spoonful so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. Of course, if you'd like to support us or reward yourself for all the time that you spend listening to or reading the journal feed, we offer CME credits through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. Now let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we covered this week. First, ischemic strokes, a quick review. Then musculoskeletal pain, how to treat and how not to. Antibiotics for upper GI bleeds. When to give norepinephrine in septic shock. And the best way to tape an endotracheal tube. This, of course, is the audio version of summaries that are written by our lovely authors, which this week were brought to you by The Witty, Alex Chen, Aaron Lacey, Kevin Stauffer, Sam Parnell, and Clay Smith. And without further ado, the first article from this week was titled Acute Ischemic Stroke out of the New England Journal of Medicine. Strokes happen all the time, so we're constantly on the lookout. More than 700,000 strokes occur each year in the U.S. alone. Thrombolytics and thrombectomies have completely changed the game on this terrible affliction, though. So let's have a quick summary of advice on how to treat this terrible disease from the New England Journal of Medicine. So as with almost any patient you see, start off with checking your A, B, Cs, and Gs. That G, that's for glucose. Next, we have to find out exactly what we're dealing with. You have to determine the time since onset or the last time known normal. Use the NIH Stroke Scale for severity and the modified Rankin Scale to assess premorbid function. Then these patients are going to need a CT non-contrast rule out a bleed. And then you may use the aspect score to grade the severity of the possible stroke on CT. So now that the diagnosis is made, the next thing to do is treatment. And treatments are broken down into categories based on the time since onset. The first, the first kind of breakup of these treatment groups is if the stroke has happened in the last six hours. Now, if the stroke is considered disabling, that is with an NIH score of six or more, and it's been less than 4.5 hours since the onset, then you should give IV TPA in all eligible patients. Also get a CTA or an MRA if you can, and then get these patients to a thrombectomy site if it can't be done in-house. If ineligible for TPA, Again, try to get them out there for a thrombectomy. So in short, essentially give TPA to these patients, even if thrombectomy is still on the table, okay? Now, for a little bit over that time point, there's still a role for TPA between 4.5 hours and 9 hours if thrombectomy is unavailable. And there is a large penumbra to core ratio. That's a maybe though kind of on the evidence side. Things are still coming out about that. Now, if the time of onset is between 6 hours and 24 hours, you should get a CTA or MRA for potential thrombectomy if they meet either the Diffuse 3 or the DON criteria. I won't list all of those criteria here because honestly, you'll probably have to look them up either way. Now, for patients presenting in less than 24 hours with an NIH score of 3 or less, start dual antiplatelet therapy for 21 days within that 24-hour period. And then for the patients that present after 24 hours, but before 48 hours, these patients are gonna want to start on aspirin daily. Overall, in a spoonful, I hope you have MD Calc or something on your phone because you're going to need it for these patients. They need a lot of risk scores and then they're gonna get treated according to the time since onset. Now then the second summary was actually from two articles. The first article was non pharmacologic and pharmacological Management of Acute Pain from Non-Low Back Pain Musculoskeletal Injuries in Adults, a Clinical Guideline from the American College of Physicians and American Academy of Family Physicians. Whew, long title. And the other article was Management of Acute Pain from Non-Low Back Pain Musculoskeletal Injuries, a Systematic Review and a Network Meta-Analysis of Randomized Trials. Both of these studies were out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. Now, unless the podcast audience is much younger than I would figure, then I think that most of you have experienced some degree of MSK pain in the past. Even myself, as I record this, I'm standing in front of a standing desk because sitting for too long actually kind of makes my back hurt. In terms of the scale of this problem, it's pretty big. 15% of ER visits and 4% of all healthcare visits are for MSK pain. That's that's no joke. That's a lot. And most of the time, it's just pain though. It's not something that's actually going to do any more than hurt your patients. So for this reason, the management of that pain is really important, especially keeping in mind the volume of these complaints. So this study was a systematic review that looked at 207 studies evaluating 33,000 patients with acute, meaning less than four weeks, non-low back pain. Combined in this study is another systematic review looking at predictors of prolonged opioid use after MSK injury. So the goal for treating these patients is striking a balance between pain relief, function, treatment satisfaction, and adverse events. Those in mind, this study has made the following recommendations. Recommendation one First-line treatment should be with topical NSAIDs, with or without menthol gel. This is a strong recommendation with moderate certainty evidence. And honestly, now with generic topical diclofenac available over-the-counter, this recommendation is actually fairly easy to accomplish. Next, recommendation 2A. Second-line therapy should be treatment with oral NSAIDs or acetaminophen. This is a conditional recommendation with moderate certainty evidence. Oral NSAIDs have GI side effects compared with their topical forms, so be sure to warn your patients about this. After that is recommendation 2B. Specific acupressure or transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation can be used to help with physical function and reduce pain. This is a conditional recommendation with low certainty evidence. And finally, recommendation three that suggests against the use of opioids, including Tramadol. This is a conditional recommendation with low certainty evidence. No opioids in any of the papers reviewed had a greater effect than NSAIDs, and of course, opioids have much more harms. Despite all of these recommendations, though, keep in mind that most patients in control groups had significant pain relief within a week. And even with the best supported evidence behind these treatments, the effect is honestly quite modest. So setting clear expectations with your patients is of absolute importance in these cases. Now, in a spoonful, for non-low back pain in adults, communication is key. And your first-line treatment should be topical NSAIDs, followed by oral NSAIDs or acetaminophen, and then you should be avoiding opioids. For the third summary, again, two articles. The first article was prophylactic antibiotics in cirrhotic patients with upper gastrointestinal bleeding out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. And the second article was antibiotic prophylaxis for cirrhotic patients with upper gastrointestinal bleeding, a Cochrane review. Big livers, everybody. We're talking about cirrhosis. Which actually comes in as the eighth leading cause of death worldwide. And it's no wonder because these patients are at risk for a lot of actually really terrible stuff. Just to name a few, we have upper GI bleeds, spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, have had a renal syndrome. Honestly, it really turns out that you need your liver. So, anything we can do to help with these outcomes would be a blessing in my books. This was a summary of a prior Cochrane systematic review of randomized and prospective trials looking into the utility of prophylactic antibiotics given to cirrhotic patients with upper GI bleeds. Mortality endpoints in these studies varied from in-hospital to 90 days out of hospital, and infectious endpoints included diagnoses of pneumonia, spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, UTI, and any positive blood cultures. All that being at risk, we see that giving prophylactic antibiotics in cirrhotic patients with upper GI bleeds shows some pretty compelling evidence. The number needed to treat for mortality was 22, and the number needed to treat for infection was a minuscule 4. These studies did not assess the harms of antibiotics, unfortunately, but you have to admit with NNTs like that, it's actually kind of hard to argue with. To add to that, a retrospective study from 2015 showed that the benefits of antibiotics was greater with higher severity of disease. So compared to the overall picture of treating any patient with an upper GI bleed, giving antibiotics is actually really easy. So even without harm data, I'd say I'd be hard-pressed not to think that giving antibiotics to these patients would be a good idea. In a spoonful, you could save a life and prevent an infection by giving early prophylactic antibiotics in patients with upper GI bleed who have cirrhosis. Then next we have the fourth article titled The Timing of Norepinephrine Initiation in Patients with Septic Shock, a systematic review and meta-analysis out of the Journal of Critical Care. As we've talked about several times on the podcast, there have been many advances in the management of sepsis. But septic shock is still a leading cause of morbidity and mortality. The Surviving Sepsis Campaign Bundle essentially recommends giving three things. Broad-spectrum antibiotics, quickly giving 30 milliliters per kg of crystalloids for hypotension or a lactate above 4 millimoles per liter, and giving vasopressors to patients with hypotension during or after fluid resuscitation to maintain a map of 65 millimeters of mercury. Recent guidelines have also recommended that the vasopressor used should be norepinephrine as first line for septic shock. On top of that, the sensor trial showed improved shock control with early norepi, which is interesting and that trial was also included in this meta-analysis. Overall though, the timing of vasopressors, especially in relation to IV fluids, has been kind of a black box. So this was a systematic review and meta-analysis of five studies looking at 929 patients, comparing early versus late norepinephrine initiation for patients with septic shock. What they found was that patients receiving early norepinephrine had a lower short-term mortality with an odds ratio of 0.45, a shorter time to achieve target map at 1.39 hours less, and less IV fluids within six hours by half a liter. There was no change in the length of ICU stay, though. Really, honestly, this sounds pretty great. But the problem here is that there was not a standard definition between early versus late norepinephrine between the studies that were included. Early norepinephrine ranged from anywhere between one hour to within six hours. So I guess the takeaway from this is that it's better to aim for early, be aggressive for better outcomes. Of note, it may be helpful to keep in mind to help speed up starting your infusions, is that using a large-bore peripheral IV at low doses for short periods is safe with norepinephrine. Something to look out for in this domain will be the CLOVERS trial, which is coming up. That is the crystalloid liberal or vasopressor's early resuscitation in sepsis trial, which should help us better define early versus late. In a spoonful, early initiation of norepinephrine for patients with septic shock was associated with decreased short-term mortality, reduced time to achieve target map, and lower volume of IV fluids administered within six hours. Finally, the last article, kind of a fun one, titled Characterizing the Structural Integrity of Endotracheal Tube Taping Techniques, a simulation study out of the Journal of Anesthesia and Analgesia. No surprise to say that it's important to secure your endotracheal tube once it's placed. A surprise extubation is usually the last thing that these patients need. But just how are we supposed to do this? Some shops have fancy little adhesive devices that are commercially available, but a lot of places don't. So I figure most of us are still futzing around with a roll of tape and trying to get the job done however it gets done. Here we have a study looking into which methods of taping that tube might produce the most secure fit. This was a group of anesthesiologists which evaluated five ways of taping AT tubes and then measured the force required to extubate using either quick jerks or gradual increases in force. It's kind of hard to describe each way of taping that they tested, so I'll encourage you to look at the blog or the original paper to see pictures of it. What matters most, of course, and I will try to describe are the best methods. These were the top two. Take one piece of tape wrapping from one cheek, go around the tube and then down the other cheek. The other method was taking one piece of tape, running it up one cheek to the midline and then ripping the rest of the tape longitudinally up to that midline. Take one half of it, wrap it around the tube and the other half goes down the other cheek and then repeat this starting from the other side. The worst method tested was using this ripped tape method, but only doing that on one side. Ripping the tape seems to cause weak points, and in the methods with ripped tape, they tended to fail as a result of further ripping. So it may seem like taping is a pretty trivial step, but there are pretty big differences in forces between the different methods of taping. In general, it seems best not to rip the tape and that the tape should go down both sides as far down as possible. Unfortunately, all of these studies were done on mannequins in a controlled setting, so the replication in real life might not quite be the same. In a spoonful, when comparing taping methods to secure your ET tube, a generous amount of tape, not torn, secured bilaterally and as far down as possible, seems to be your best bet. Ooh, that's it everybody. That's all the summaries for this week. Let's do a quick rapid review of everything that we covered. First, be ready with risk scores and decision aids for your stroke patients, and keep that TPA close at hand. Next, first-line treatment for non-low back pain in adults should be topical NSAIDs, plus or minus methanol gel. The next step will be oral NSAIDs or acetaminophen, and then try to avoid opioids in these patients. Next, in patients with cirrhosis and upper GI bleed, prophylactic antibiotics had a number needed to treat of 22 for mortality and 4 for infection. Strongly consider early antibiotics in these patients. From the fourth article, when to give norepinephrine in septic shock patients. We can say that it should be early, but we can't tell you exactly how early. Less than six hours would be a pretty good bet. And from the last article, a method to the madness at last. Tape your ET tube with non-torn tape, taping from one side to the other and going down as far as possible. And now we are completely done with this week. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.